Today is Wednesday, January the 18th, 2023. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key, and do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how big tech companies are using your personal data? Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network, prn.live, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. You can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. FAA says computer failure that grounded thousands of flights last Tuesday was caused by two contractors who introduced data errors into NOTAM's system. The computer failure that prompted a halt of all U.S. flight departures was caused when the data file was damaged as a result of a failure to follow government procedures, the Federal Aviation Administration said last Thursday. Unspecified personnel were responsible for corrupting the file, which led to the outage of an FAA computer system that sends safety notices to pilots, the agency said in a statement. That triggered the FAA to order a halt to all U.S. departing flights, causing thousands of delays and cancellations Wednesday. The preliminary indications are that two people working for a contractor introduce errors into the core data used on the system known as Notice to Air Missions, or NOTAM, that's N-O-T-A-M, according to a person familiar with the FAA review. The person asked not to be identified speaking about the sensitive ongoing issue. NOTAMs are advisories to pilots on safety-critical conditions at airports and other areas aircraft might traverse, including everything from warnings about bird activity to runway construction. Like other computer systems that are critical to operating flights, the FAA has imposed procedures to ensure data aren't damaged by technicians working on them. The file or files were altered in spite of rules that prohibit those kind of changes on a live system. Agency officials are attempting to determine whether the two people made the changes accidentally or intentionally, and if there was any malicious intent. When the system began having problems last Tuesday night, technicians switched to a backup. But because the backup was attempting to access the same damaged data, it also didn't work. A complete shutdown was required to restore the system, leading the FAA to halt all flight departures for roughly 90 minutes Wednesday morning. The agency is attempting to create new protections to prevent such a failure in the future. Portions of the Notham computer system are as old as 30 years. Well, thus say that this explanation that was given does not compute. The corrupted file was not a physically damaged file. A physically damaged file would have generated a read error message. The backup file was no different than the one that was corrupted. In other words, it worked fine the day before. If it was accessing the same damage data as was noted in the press release, there was no backup. It noted that two people were involved in altering the file. The incident related to an advisory notice. I can see how one person may have made the changes accidentally or intentionally, but two people? The optics of all this is the explanation just does not compute. Space Agency mounts rescue mission to bring home two cosmonauts and U.S. astronaut marooned on ISS. Moscow will launch a rescue vessel to the International Space Station next month to bring home three crew members who are, in effect, stuck in orbit after the original capsule was hit by a meteoroid. The Dark Soyuz MS-22 sprang a major leak last month, spraying radiator coolant into space and prompting a pair of cosmonauts to abort a planned spacewalk. While Russia's space agency, Roscosmos, 
said the strike caused no immediate threat to the crew of the space station, it raised concerns about whether everyone on the orbital outpost could return to Earth in an emergency situation. With a leak resulting in higher cabin temperatures, the MS-22 was deemed unfit, leaving only one operational escape pod docked on the ISS, a SpaceX Crew Dragon spacecraft. There are seven people on board the space station, but the SpaceX capsule has only four seats. After deliberations, Roscosmos said it has decided to bring forward a planned March launch of the Soyuz MS-23 to February 20th so it can be used to transport the Russian cosmonauts Sergei Prokopyev and Dmitry Patelin and the U.S. astronaut Francisco Rubio back to Earth. If a particular critical situation arose on the ISS in the weeks before then, Roscosmos said the possibility of using the damaged Soyuz MS-22 to rescue the crew would be considered. MS-23 was initially planned to take up three crew members, but were head up empty as a rescue vessel. The Roscosmos chief, Yuri Borisov, did not say when the two Russian cosmonauts and Rubio would return to Earth in the backup Soyuz. The damaged MS-22 will return without a crew once its replacement arrives, Roscosmos added. Micrometeoroids, naturally occurring pieces of rock or metal that can be as small as a grain of sand, pose a significant danger to human spaceflight. They hurl around the Earth at about 17,000 miles per hour, much faster than the speed of a bullet. Roscosmos said the diameter of the micrometeoroid that hit the docked Soyuz was tiny, creating a hole in the capsule that was only one millimeter in diameter. It caused significant damage, with NASA TV images showing white particles resembling snowflakes streaming out of the rear. Human-made space junk can also damage equipment. In 2021, Russia blew up one of its own satellites in a missile test that created clouds of zooming shrapnel. Space has remained a rare area of cooperation between Moscow and Washington since Russia invaded Ukraine. I have an 11-year-old granddaughter who is doing some JavaScript programming. She wanted to know the format for one of the functions. She typed a query into OpenAI ChatGBT, and its output contained not only the answer, but also offered different examples of how it is used. OpenAI ChatGPT is a product in development. When it is finally released, it will most definitely give Google Search a stiff challenge. ChatGPT interacts in a conversational way. The dialogue format makes it possible for ChatGPT to answer follow-up questions, admit its mistakes, challenge incorrect premises, and reject inappropriate requests. ChatGBT is a sibling model to InstructGBT, which is trained to follow an instruction in a prompt and provide a detailed response. OpenAI's ChatGBT bot sparks excitement and concern from investors, entrepreneurs, researchers. Extremely impressive, incredibly rich, super exciting, that's how tech leaders are describing ChatGBT, the new conversational chatbot model. The bot builds on existing GPT natural language technology developed by OpenAI. The San Francisco-based organization formed by tech leaders Sam Altman and Elon Musk and backed by Microsoft, which helps power the backend and cloud computing for OpenAI products. ChatGBT is able to quickly answer complicated questions and instantly produce content. It can easily do homework or create weight loss plans or even draft lines of code. The tech is making college professors rethink how they create exam questions. From my perspective, I'm very impressed. Microsoft is more so impressed to put up $10 billion. Yes, that's with a B. $10 billion. 
Fortune reports that it has seen documents describing the deal between Microsoft and OpenAI. According to the documents, Microsoft is to get back $92 billion in profits and $13 billion in initial investment from a future profitable OpenAI. The other venture capitalists are to receive up to $150 billion. After these profits are paid out, OpenAI is to be owned by itself again and could be granted non-profit status. According to the media, the information, the profit distributions to investors are to be changed. Instead of a fixed cap, it should be possible to increase profit distribution by 20% per year, which could net investors fabulous sums if OpenAI delivers on its AGI promises or simply launches profitable AI products for many areas of life. If the reports are true, it doesn't look like Altman and company are looking to sell OpenAI quickly during a hype phase. OpenAI founder Altman is also said to have no shares in the for-profit OpenAI company, but that could change as part of the deal. Apparently, OpenAI executives are speculating that the company will be worth many times what it is today in the future. Still, they need to hedge OpenAI today to cover ongoing costs and continue to invest in their own technology. The deal could close as early as the end of this month, according to Fortune. However, ChatGBT banned from New York City public school devices and networks. A spokesperson for OpenAI, which developed ChatGPT, said it is already developing mitigations to help anyone identify text generated by that system. New York City's Department of Education announced a ban on the wildly popular chatbot ChatGBT, which some have warned could inspire more student cheating from its school devices and networks. Jenna Lyle, a spokesperson for the department, said the decision to ban ChatGBT, which is able to generate conversational responses to text prompts, stemmed from concerns about the negative impacts on student learning. While the tool may be able to provide quick and easy answers to questions, it does not build critical thinking and problem-solving skills, which are essential to academic and lifelong success, Lyle said in an email statement. It was not immediately clear if the ban applied to City University of New York system. A representative did not immediately provide comment. In New York public schools, ChatGBT could still be made available upon request to classes studying artificial intelligence. Although chatbots are not a new technology, ChatGBT, a chatbot created by artificial intelligence company OpenAI, exploded on social media in late 2022 after some declared the bot was a better search engine than Google thanks to its conversational speaking style and coherent topical response style. In an email statement responding to the New York City public schools ban, a spokesperson for OpenAI said the company doesn't want ChatGBT to be used for misleading purposes in schools or anywhere else. The company is already developing mitigations to help anyone identify text generated by that system, the spokesperson said. The New York City Department of Education decision to ban the BART comes amid discourse about the impact ChatGBT could have on education if students were to use it to generate homework assignments, solve mathematical equations, and write essays. Experts have acknowledged that chatbots like ChatGBT could be a detriment to education in the future, but some said they weren't ready to sound the alarm just yet. Those who work in both the fields of education and artificial intelligence said that institutions will need to find ways to integrate ChatGBT into their curriculum rather than outlaw them altogether. There's always been this concern that technologies would do away with what people do best, and the reality is that people have to learn how to use these technologies to enhance what they do best. And what else is new about ChatGBT? Microsoft looks to add OpenAI's chatbot technology to email. In a move word that could change how more than a billion people write documents, presentations, and emails, Microsoft has discussed incorporating 
open AI's artificial intelligence in Word, PowerPoint, Outlook, and other apps so customers can automatically generate text using simple prompts according to a person with direct knowledge of the effort. These goals won't be easy to accomplish. For more than a year, Microsoft engineers and researchers have worked to create personalized AI tools for composing emails and documents by applying OpenAI's machine learning models to customers' private data, which hasn't previously been reported. Engineers are developing methods to train these models on the customer data without it leaking to other customers or falling into hands of bad actors. The person said the AI-powered writing and editing tools also run the risk of turning off customers if those features introduce mistakes. And other activity with ChatGBT is that CNET has been quietly publishing AI-written articles for months. The tech site has been publishing articles written by AI and edited by humans since November following other news outlets. CNET reporter Jackson Ryan published an article last month describing how ChatGBT and AI that can generate human-sounding text would affect journalists and the news industry. ChatGBT is a stunning AI, but human jobs are safe for now, he said. It definitely can't do the job of a journalist, Ryan wrote of ChatGBT. To say so diminishes the act of journalism itself. The article said ChatGBT isn't coming for journalists' jobs just yet, but the very publication that ran Ryan's article has been quietly publishing articles written by AI since November. According to Futurism and online marketer Gail Breton, the AI-written CNET articles bear the byline CNET, Money Staff, which is identified on the outlet's website as AI content published under this author byline is generated using automation technology. CNET responded in a linked statement via email saying that the Money Editorial team was trying out the technology to see if there's a pragmatic use case for an AI assist on basic explainers around financial services topics. CNET Editor-in-Chief Connie Guglielmo said in a statement that the company's goal had been if the AI engine would be able to assist their busy staff of reporters and editors with their job to cover topics from a 360-degree perspective. The company questioned if CNET would benefit from AI's content to provide available facts allowing readers to make better decisions. The first article written by CNET Money Staff was published on November the 11th with the headline, What is a Credit Card Charge-Off? Since then, the news site has published 73 AI-generated articles. But the outlet says on its website that a team of editors is involved in the content from start to publication ensuring that the information that they publish and the recommendations they make are accurate, credible, and helpful in defining responsibility for what they do. The outlet says they will continue to publish each article with editorial integrity and says accuracy, independence, and authority remains key principles of their editorial guidelines. The most recent versions of consumer-facing artificial intelligence have taken the tech community by storm with their ability to write passable essays, articles, and computer code in seconds, though the quality varies, and ChatGBT has been banned from several high-profile forums. CNET is not the first news outlet to utilize AI technology, as the Associated Press has boasted of being one of the first news organizations to leverage artificial intelligence. Since 2015, according to its website, They said, today we use machine learning along key points in our value chain, including gathering, producing, and distributing the news, the site reads. It's not clear whether the AP uses AI to write the stories themselves. Other major news outlets have incorporated AI technology into their work, with the Washington Post announcing it was using AI to provide live updates for the 2020 presidential election on its podcast. The goal, the outlet said, was to keep listeners up to date 
during the steady stream of election-based news that would be coming out. The question of whether AI is supplanting jobs is yet to be answered. Ryan wrote that ChatGBT's inability to understand or read emotion makes it useless in the context of journalism, at least at this point. ChatGBT, he says, doesn't have the ability to describe the feelings seen on a player's face when they win the World Cup or talk to a Ukrainian about how the Russian invasion has changed their lives or would definitely have no hope of covering Musk's takeover of Twitter. Yeah, but in time they will. Guillermo said in a statement that CNET will continue to assess these new tools to determine if they're right for the, our business, she added. For now, CNET is doing what we do best, testing a new technology so we can separate the hype from reality. Norton LifeLock says thousands of customer accounts were breached. Thousands of Norton LifeLock customers had their accounts compromised in recent weeks, potentially allowing criminal hackers access to customer password managers, the company revealed in a recent data breach notice. In a notice to customers, Gen Digital, the parent company of Norton LifeLock, said that the likely culprit was a credential stuffing attack where previously exposed or breached credentials are used to break into accounts on different sites and services that share the same passwords, rather than a compromise of its systems. It's why two-factor authentication, which Norton LifeLock offers, is recommended as it blocks attackers from accessing someone's account with just their password. The company said it found that the intruders had compromised accounts as far back as December 1 of last year, close to two weeks before its systems detected a large volume of failed logins to customer accounts on December the 12th. In accessing your account with your username and password, the unauthorized third party may have viewed your first name, last name, phone number, and mailing address, the data breach notice said. The notice was sent to customers that it believes use its password manager feature because the company cannot rule out that the intruders also access customers' saved passwords. Gen Digital said it sent notices to 6,450 customers whose accounts were compromised. Norton LifeLock provides identity protection and cybersecurity services. It's the latest incident involving the theft of customer passwords of late. Earlier this year, password manager giant LastPass confirmed a data breach in which intruders compromised its cloud storage, and stole millions of customers' encrypted password vaults. In 2021, the company behind a popular enterprise password manager called Password State was hacked to push a tainted software update to its customers, allowing the cybercriminals to steal customers' passwords. That said, password managers are still widely recommended by security professionals for generating and storing unique passwords. So long as the appropriate precautions and protections are put in place to limit the fallout in the event of a compromise. It's always wise to have different passwords for different locations that require passwords. Presenting the IT Pro Series with Benjamin Rockwell. This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time to get down to business. This is where we talk about computers, the workplace, and yes, getting better in life. And this week, I'm going to cover something that is a little bit, uh, there's a combination of different things that are going on. For instance, there is a recent statistic that says that there are more jobs available than the people to fill them. That's right. There are more jobs than than the available manpower. That is an amazing thing. It happens on a regular basis, but we need to remember that right now. We also need to realize that there are a number of different things at this point in time. We can move ourselves. You can move yourself to a better position because there's that availability, there's that opportunity that's in front of you. But you need 
to frame yourself as being better than a lot of the other applicants. And the applicants these days are not just the people in your local area. For instance, let's say you live in a metropolitan area that has 5 million people or even a million people. You have to be that one in a million. Well, not even the one in a million because, well, in reality, there's only going to be so many people in your one million metropolitan area that it's going to be a small amount that are going to be vying for that job. But the jobs have expanded and they've looked for people across the country and in some places around the world. The job I work at right now, they chose me out of people across the country and that you know that feels kind of good uh, and there were there were a lot of different things that matched into this it was more than just the technical background it was the willingness to learn it was the culture and matching into what they were looking for their ideal employee so we need to remember as we're going through and we're prepping up we need to identify what makes an ideal employee? What makes it, what in our background is going to be the ideal job for us? How do we want to fit into the culture and how do we want the culture to be where we're working? So there are a few different things, there are a few different tricks that I want you to use when you're landing what I would refer to as the dream job. So first, I want you to make sure that you are addressing the automated or applicant tracking systems. And the, uh, there's a, uh, just a couple of different things. And what they're doing is they're paying the different keywords within your resume. It's those specific phrases or words that have been identified as the key requirements for the person who's going to be working there. So there are, uh, there are various keywords within the industry you need to be targeting. There are currently, uh, or there are many different job titles that you need to match up if you want to do that. So you've got to format your resume to match up as best you can. And then you need to move on through all of the different things in regards to your experience. You want to give a headline and you want to give a number of different things in regards to whatever made you successful within that particular job. And you want to quantify those numbers, those achievements that really will bring you on out. Now, I don't want you to lie. I don't want you to make up anything. I don't want you to just put stuff on the paper. I want I want you to take fact. I want you to, because look, if you lie, you're going to either be underqualified or you're going to be in over your head. So I want you to say the real thing, but I want you to put it together in such a way that it makes you attractive. Don't, especially in the tech world, do not bluff and say, oh, yes, I know how to program in C++ if you've never done programming in C++. But you can say, hey, I have this experience with programming. I've done this language and this language and this language. These give me a lot of heads up and this is a project that I completed doing these languages. You also need to work on something that is... Uh, Professor Nez, you can look him up online. Uh, he gave me a little bit of help uh, a number of years ago, and he's a great guy. But he talked about, he introduced me at the very first point in time to the idea of individualized branding. And I think I'd heard it before, but I, did, I didn't really think about it for myself. It was a lot of our conversation that he really struck home with me on this. I knew about branding. I knew about branding for the for all of the radio work that I do and for all of the different things I uh, I do professionally like that. But I hadn't thought about it as far as branding myself in a resume. So you've got to think about branding yourself and you've got to think about expanding that brand everywhere so that your LinkedIn profile is going to be leveraged the best you can. You're going to have all of that up-to-date work history. You're going to have all of those achievements. You're going to have all of the different information that's up there. But you also need to brand yourself in multiple platforms. 
So when you update your resume on LinkedIn, when you make some changes, when you do all of these different things, make sure it shows up in various other places like Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Make sure you're linking these all together because you're going to be networking and you're going to be doing all of this information to get it on out there so that you can land what is really ideal for you. This is a time of opportunity if you're not happy in your job to find something that's great. But don't leave your old job until you get the dream job. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. Cord cutting implies dumping a traditional TV subscription cable service to switch over to a streaming service to consume your content or watch TV programs and movies that are delivered to the viewer via the internet. There are streaming services that offer your favorite content on the internet without an expensive cable subscription that comes with channels you are never really going to watch. Some of these video streaming services are Netflix, Amazon Prime Instant Video, Sling TV, Hulu, BBC iPlayer, iFlix, Hoog, and HBO Now. Cord cutting started with the release of the first Roku Player, an Apple TV device which transformed the way viewers watch videos. These devices can just be plugged into the TV and content can be streamed instantly without the need for any additional equipment like a set-top box or an antenna as required by traditional cable TV or satellite TV service. With the addition of apps for Netflix, Hulu, and Amazon on devices like Roku and Apple TV, it enables access to video content to users at their convenience. With traditional TV, viewers were limited to watching their favorite movies and TV shows in the living room from the comfort, of course, their couch. If they wanted to watch TV in other rooms, they would require a separate connection from their cable TV service provider. This scenario has changed drastically with cord cutting since viewers are no longer limited to watching their favorite TV show or movie or TV channel and other videos on one specific device. As the term TV everywhere suggests, viewers can literally stream video content from anywhere at any time, on any device of their choice, whether it's a smartphone, tablet, smart TV, laptop, or essentially any device that supports streaming. Switching over to a streaming service provided the convenience of choosing exactly what the viewer wants to watch, where one wants to watch the content, and we're no longer bounded by a TV schedule. Another important factor was commercials. On services like Netflix, TV shows and movies can be watched without any commercials, unlike a traditional cable TV service where there are annoying commercials even if you are paying for access to this TV channel. Other factors contributing to cord cutting is the rising cost of TV service, people losing interest in traditional cable programming, and leading an increasing number of people to drop cable and switch over to streaming. Now, as the number of service providers that offer live TV increases, it shows how much cord cutters are misconceived. Many cord cutters want live TV, according to a study, as compared to the number of global cord cutters. The number of subscribers to Sling TV, PlayStation View, and DirecTV now is a lot lower. This makes it pretty evident that just streaming TV channel content online is not the only thing cord cutters want. Cord cutting is about saving money and the ability to pay for just what you want. It's also to watch what you want and when you want it. Cord cutters have a lot more control today. There is so much to cord cutting that just being able to save money each month in comparison to hefty cable TV package subscriptions, then that's definitely a big plus. It offers the viewers and puts them in control. No longer does one need to revolve around the TV guide, and this is a much more liberating experience to the viewer. According to various research, 
13% of U.S. homes today now have broadband but no pay TV package subscription. Consumer Insights surveys have found that U.S. video cord cutting is comparable to major countries in Europe and Asia. Studies conducted across eight different countries point to consistent figures that are comparable in trend with the United States. Another research points to the fact that half of video cord cutter households in China and more than two-thirds in South Korea receive TV entertainment via online video services. Connected Consumer in Europe, a new report from Parks Associates, reveals Spanish consumers are more likely than consumers in other Western European markets either to have never had pay TV or to have canceled play TV in favor of online video sources. Spain exceeds the United States in percentage of cord cutters and broadband households that watch online video. But in the UK, France, and Germany, the incidence of cord cutting is far lower than the United States. Overall, what we are seeing currently is a global trend, and reasons for cutting the cord more or less are same across the world. Various studies point out that the market for linear TV is shrinking rapidly, with increasing number of viewers switching over to OTT streaming services. Considering that linear TV providers like DirecTV are providing apps that can be installed on, on smart devices, which means they are reinventing themselves so they can thrive in the wake of ongoing competition from over-the-top, on-demand services like Netflix, Hulu, etc., it is only natural that if cable and satellite TV providers, including those who offer pay TV services, constantly try to bring out the best value for money options for viewers while keeping up to pace with streaming service providers in terms of technology, content, and channel offering, because ultimately, as they say, the customer is the king. And if you're looking to start your own streaming service or are an existing streaming service provider, then to stay ahead of the competition, bear in mind these factors to attract and retain cord cutters and cord nevers. Will the era of traditional TV come to an end in the near future? There are cord cutters, there are cord trimmers, and cord nevers. Cord cutters are viewers who decided to cancel or cut the cord on their cable or satellite subscriptions in favor of less expensive or free video platforms. Next, we have cord trimmers who've cut their TV subscription expenses by trimming their TV packages and opting for skinnier TV bundles. And lastly, we have cord nevers. This type of viewer has never paid for cable or satellite subscription. According to the latest cord cutting statistics, 55.1% of U.S. consumers will have cut the cord by the end of 2022. Cable cord cutting statistics in 2023 show that cable and satellite subscriptions are plummeting. Major cable providers like AT&T are losing customers at an alarming rate as streaming services like Hulu and Disney Plus seem to be taking over. Many people using traditional paid TV providers are now turning to live streaming TV services as a replacement. Hulu is the most popular live internet TV service. AT&T, Comcast, and Charter have had major losses in their TV subscription customer base. The cable TV decline has become more visible when all major cable companies, media giants, and satellite providers publish their fourth quarter earnings. It's clear that Internet TV is winning. By 2026, paid TV services will account for less than 50% of all U.S. TV households. AT&T has lost the most customers, but cord-cutting stats show that other companies like DirecTV and Uverse has had major losses of customers in the same quarter. Around the world, pay TV losses equal 46% of the total subscriber base. In 2010, pay TV had its highest number of users at 105 million. By 2027, Estimates expect users to drop to 60 million. That's 60 million from 105 million. That's huge. Netflix has close to 222 million subscribers 
in 2022. The subscriber count is impressive, but, and there's a big but on this, estimates show that 53% of the people who watch Netflix don't pay for it. They're using, guess what, someone else's account. In 2021, only 56% of Americans watch satellite or cable TV. The percentage of people that watch cable TV in the United States has significantly dropped by 20%. Even more revealing, cord-cutting statistics for 2021, over 60% of those that don't use the services were subscribers at some point. Cable and satellite TV penetration is likely to fall by 26% by 2030. The Diffusion Group believes that by the end of 2030, the percentage of U.S. households with traditional pay TV services will drop from the 81% it had in 2017 to 60%. That's a 26% decline. And if this prediction holds true, cable TV subscriber statistics are bound to change drastically. The number of cord cutters is predicted to reach 55.1 million in 2022. A market researcher, eMarketer, published its forecast relating to the growth of cord cutting trend. The company laid out the information about the people in the United States who stopped paying for traditional pay TV services. Over 70% of the people without traditional pay TV in 2021 say that the web offers what they want. With more people spending most of their time online, they no longer find the need for television subscriptions. 71% of the percentage of people currently without the service cite video content available on the internet as their top reason. Cord Cutter's favorite subscription video on demand service provider is Netflix. A 2018 study from eMarketer showed that 64.5% of U.S. digital video viewers watch Netflix at least once a month. Other research shows that Netflix ranks second among subscription video on demand services with 171.6 million worldwide viewers in 2020. Obviously, first place went to Google's YouTube. In 2018, it had approximately 192 million viewers, and that's only in the United States. Other video service providers with a considerably high number of U.S. viewers include Amazon, 88.7 million, Hulu, 55 million. Like Netflix, these services provide quality programming that audiences from every age bracket can find something to watch. It is no wonder that predictions show great promise for these services in an era when most people are cutting the cord. 39% of sports lovers use social media and other streaming devices to watch live matches in 2021. In 2021, nearly 40% of people that watch live tournaments aren't doing so using traditional TV. They're watching games via ad-supported streaming online. Surprisingly, those who still use traditional TV say that watching live sports is the only reason they still subscribe. One of the many conclusions we can draw from all this data is that traditional pay TV is on shaky ground. The high fees of TV packages are boosting the growth of cord cutting, and to lower their losses, cable and satellite TV providers will have to modify the business model. Presenting Technology Chatter with Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston. Marty Winston joins me now. And Marty, um, how, uh, how do I say this? I'm old. You are uh, we'll say a couple of weeks older than I am. Uh, uh, true, yeah. <laughs> I let's let's not put the auditors on that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I want to talk about social media, uh, and I wanted to get an idea from you, kind of what your thoughts are with, uh, in regards to uh, social well, media I, overall, I, the history yeah, of it. I have a more historic view, you know. Uh, it takes more than a change of letters to have Twitter turn bitter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Yes. But Twitter, I mean, it, it's just one of those. Everything is so ephemeral. Everything comes and goes. Sure. Uh, we all, I'm sure, remember AOL. 
Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Okay. So you're going back. To, I, I, I would have figured MySpace, but AOL. Okay. Prodigy. CompuServe. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, back Compu in those Surf, days. Yeah. Bix. Those at the source. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. And there's there's one boards. from the dark ages. Yeah. Bulletin um, boards. Hey, you know, I ran a bulletin board for a number of years. And it ran you, no doubt. <laughs> yeah, it ran me into the ground. Actually, I learned a lot of my tech from from being a BBS sysop. It, it forces you to that, especially in an era when updates were so much, oh, you didn't find it too bad. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yes, definitely. <laughs> uh, so those are the electronic formats, and those aren't even all of them. I mean, if you go back to CB radio and ham radio. For those of you who remember either okay. one. Hey, social media, I guess in a way that is social media. Yeah, okay, I get and it. Bef- and before that, when we all had party line connections to the telephone service. Okay. So, so listen in on your neighbors, chat with them if you want to. Yeah, you know, yeah, All of that yeah, was happening. Yeah. And, and before any telephones went in. The idea of gathering at the general store, Cracker Barrel, and and sharing stuff, or yes, yeah, gossip okay. over the back fence, or mm-hmm. or everybody gets together for sewing circle or a book club or what have you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. they're, they're, yeah. even in those days, there were soccer moms. Even if soccer was nowhere near this continent at the time, <laughs> <laughs> a chance to talk to each other as as the children were doing whatever. There have always been opportunities for people to talk to people. Mm-hmm. Uh, church, everybody goes to church, or back then even more so, everybody went to church and yeah. they'd be walking home or, or meeting outside or picnicking or whatever. Sure. Con- yeah. Conversations and, and random things. And this little group criticizing the bejabbers out of that little group. You know, he's a bad guy. I think he's got some of the devil in, you know, all of that stuff. <laughs> But you start thinking in those terms and you mm-hmm. start to recognize social media really doesn't need media. It just needs people. So when did society become social? And the answer to that's back in just post caveman at the mm-hmm. dawn of civilized society. When cities, towns, settlements first formed, you took Humans, natural skepticism about trust being put in other people, and you overcame that mm-hmm. for the benefit of having a neighbor. You know, it, it, Did it you check it. it out? Fred invented fire. I don't know. If, uh, I'm not sure I'm going to trust him on that one. Yeah, the stop, stop. I have an ad here for the new Fire Plus. <laughs> <laughs> Social media has yeah, been around okay, a long right, time, right. and it was really, really, how do I put it? The, the need for it was mightily enhanced by the isolation everybody felt during the pandemic. Mm-hmm, yeah. you, were, you were quarantined, you were working from home, you weren't seeing other people. If you did, everybody was wearing masks. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't fun. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot it was. It yeah, wasn't yeah. fun. So coming out of that, we're all adjusting and not quite trusting. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so where do you think uh, where do you think we're going to go with social media? We we've uh, I think things are shifting and changing. Facebook is struggling, and Twitter, all the rest of them are going through their own little. Well, Facebook didn't exactly have uh, rip roaring success with their idea that social media would happen with avatar. Avatar yeah, people would, in goggles, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Removing the reality, yeah. What if what if we all had radio, wireless, remote-controlled marionettes we could put at your houses? <laughs> <laughs> they could walk around and talk and, and, and relay back. I mean, uh, uh, it, I, I'm it's just not having, the technology. Yeah. It's never been the technology. It's a human need. Mm-hmm. You know, the need to... Uh, Personalities, the need to dominate, the need to be dominated. Mm-hmm. We find them all over social media. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, Facebook, the guy who's posting every 15 minutes, even though he doesn't really have much to say. Facebook, the guy who's complaining about the guy who's posting every 15 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. What is the point? But nobody worries about what the point is. It's all about some nature of 
my personality versus this thing. I need to be this for them. Mm-hmm. And, and, and they're not smart enough to attack the message instead of the messenger. So it creates bad blood and, and temper and nerves and stress and what foolishness, but I'm not their mother. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I guess, I, I guess long-term we're going to have to, we're going to have to, somebody's going to have to solve that. And I, I don't think it's going to be you or I. No, but, no, no. CB radio doesn't have enough channels. <laughs> <laughs> this is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. And thank you, Marty. Public service announcements. Computer club meetings in the New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut tri-state region. Log on to the club website for more information on remote meeting ID. The Brookdale Computer Users Group has a presentation on my top 10 favorite or most frequently used Windows programs. Thursday, January the 26th, meeting time is 6.45 p.m., virtual meeting via Zoom, website is bcug.com. TechEd Connect, formerly Westchester PC Users Group, meets Thursday, February the 2nd, meeting time is 7 p.m., Online virtual meeting via Zoom. Website is wpcug.org. The Amateur Computer Group of New Jersey meets Friday, February the 3rd. Meeting time is 8 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Jitsi. Meeting site is acgnj.org. The New York Amateur Computer Club has a presentation, Customizing Windows 10. Thursday, February the 9th. Meeting time is 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom, and the website is nyacc.org. The Long Island Macintosh Users Group meets Friday, February the 10th, at 7 p.m., online virtual meeting via Zoom, and their website is limac.org. The Kingsbyte Computer Club meets Tuesday, February the 14th, Meeting time is 7 p.m. They meet at the Park Plaza Restaurant located at 220 Cadman Plaza West in Brooklyn. And for more information, the phone number is 347-278-7320. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on prn.live streaming on the internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email address to hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of the gang, Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, Marty Winston, and Rebecca Mercury, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy until we meet again, same time, same station, next week.